On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Innovation and Leadership, where we interview Navy SEALs, venture capitalists, pro athletes, best-selling authors, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of high achievers as we can get to come on the show. Today's episode is going to be from our mini-series that we created with Corporate Alliance, asking top CEOs and executives and entrepreneurs who have had very large exits, specifically about their thoughts on leadership and people. Alex uh, is with us here today. He's the president of Vivint. Uh, we've been talking about Vivint Smart Home. If you know Vivint Solar also. You know, uh, we, and we have certainly had our share, our fair share of failures. Um, and I think we're, we're not a culture that likes to fail at all. So, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure I subscribe to the, hey, we, you know, like we celebrate failure. Um, we don't celebrate it. We hate it. Um, but we also are, um, we understand that if you are innovating and pushing the envelope, that you're probably going to fail sometimes. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper, but uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, Probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, So totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co, and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. If you missed part one, you really need to go back and and hear about raising money from Goldman Sachs and other folks. Um, But to start this episode off, Alex, I'd love to hear, um, thinking about someone who sets an example for how to treat other people, you brought up your your partner, CEO of Vivint, Todd Peterson. Can you talk about him for a minute? Todd is a very um, unique uh, character, certainly in the business landscape, um, who is, um, uh, he's a little bit of enigma. I mean, I think people think maybe they kind of know, um, he, he never, uh, what he is like. Um, but you know, many times, um, uh, if they haven't ever met him there, there, he's not anything like what they maybe thought he might be like. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, his in the 12 years I've been here has never worn a business suit to in fact he never wears more than like jeans and a t-shirt um and typically a hat um uh to any meeting I've been in and you know we've met with you know they've been there's been some very important meetings that typically 
people would not be wearing, you know, jeans and a t-shirt. Um, so, um, he, um, but he is one of the most authentic, uh, people that I know. And, um, we talked about earlier about, um, being okay with your weaknesses and embracing your strengths. Um, and he has set a tone and a culture here at Vivint, uh, smart home that, that, um, uh, allows people to, um, admit maybe not the right word but um be comfortable in the fact that they don't know everything or they're not good at everything um because he is so um open with that about what he's not good at um and uh comfortable with that and so there's a a culture here where uh, you know I've been in other places or situations where it's like you can't you know it's like if you show any weakness or perceived weakness then you know you're you're uh, going to be kind of run over. Um, the truth is we all have weaknesses. We all have our weaknesses and, uh, our, the flat sides or, or our, um, and we all have strengths. And I think if you focus again more on those strengths and he, he has, he has set that tone here, um, by being okay with the fact that, you know, there's things he's exceptionally good at. And then there's thing, he has a very short attention span, uh, meetings. He hates meetings. Um, you know, we're lucky to kind of keep him engaged for 15 minutes, but there's also real strength to that. Cause it's like, you have to kind of get to the point and, you know, like, uh, uh, not waste a lot of time. Um, so he, he's been, um, it's been a real joy being able to build the business with him and, and learn from him and, um, and then also see how, um, he is able to really make friends with, you know, everybody that he interacts with. I mean, you never forget, you know, meeting Todd and, and, uh, how easy it is for him to get to know people. And, um, everywhere we go, um, he is making friends with the Uber drivers and the, you know, we get invited. He, he served a Mormon mission when he was younger to Dominican Republic. So every time we go to New York, we're being invited over for rice and beans to someone's house because, he'll recognize her from the DR and, you know, start talking to them. And in 10 minutes, they're best friends. That's right. Um, and in your mind, what is the advantage of having a culture where people don't have to pretend they're well-rounded and know everything? So I think, I mean, I, I think on the flip side of that, we have a culture where we expect you to be really good at whatever it is that you're responsible for. Um, but I think what it does is it really fosters a lot of trust. Um, because look, everybody has insecurities and everybody has weaknesses. And, and if you're in a culture where you're not really allowed to kind of expose that, then you're kind of, um, there, there's, you're missing, I think, an element of trust when, when, um, you know, you kind of expose all of who you are, um, and you know, you fit into that team based on all of that, um, then uh, there's a really high level of trust. And I would say we have an exceptionally, we have an exceptional management team with people from all over the country and a bunch of different industries um, who have, you know, in their own right, we probably have five or six people here that could run the company. Um, and we've been able to get them. Um, and every one of them has said this, um, that this has been the most unique culture they've ever worked in. Um, because it's more about the team than it is about any of the individuals. And obviously that has to start at the top with Todd. Um, and he will, you know, 
he will say he will um, he will say that he will, he will he will say you know he's not he, as we, when we make decisions we're making those as a team together um, nothing is being dictated um, and I think it's led to a tremendous amount of our growth because there's no bottleneck we we have we've broadened the team which then has broadened our capacity and many times entrepreneurs have a really hard time transitioning from small company to a bigger one because you need to give up. Um, it's actually, um, it's about, I think, to successfully make that transition, it's about actually giving up control, not maintaining control. And typically an entrepreneur has gotten to where they've gotten to by like controlling everything. Um, and, and Todd has been able to really successfully um, make that transition. And so part of it is you know, we it, it's a very strong culture, uh, a lot of trust, and we're okay that, you know, that um, uh, different people bring different strengths to the table, which also means they bring different weaknesses to the table as well. So um, let's talk about this. I mean, it sounds like just a lot of, like, deep self-honesty, right? Um, thinking about large transactions like Vivint Solar going public or, or the, you know, $2 billion transaction with Blackstone. Can you talk about, um, cause those are definitely temptations to put on a, you know, have a cardboard cutout version of ourselves. We want everybody to believe in and, you know, right. <laughs> yes. can, can you talk about what it was like to do those transactions and to be in that space where maybe there can be temptations to, uh, to maybe not be as honest about all of that? <laughs> yeah. So I think what we, the, the word we would use for all that is just authenticity. It's like, look, just, you know, be who you are. And there's, uh, there's parts of us and parts of what we've accomplished that are amazing, but there's also, you know, that we have weaknesses and there's been lots of failures too. And we're the first to kind of embrace those and talk about them and say, here's what we learned. And, you know, uh, we, and we have certainly had our share, our fair share of failures. Um, and I think we're we're not a culture that likes to fail at all. So you know, I don't, I'm I'm not sure I subscribe to the hey we you know like we celebrate failure. Um, we don't celebrate it. We hate it. Um, but we also are um, we understand that if you are innovating and pushing the envelope, that you're probably going to fail sometimes. And so as long as the reason you're failing is because you're pushing hard and trying to get, you know, to new places, um, then we're okay with that. If you're failing because you just aren't good at what you do and you keep failing, then you're probably not going to last super long in our culture. Um, with the, the Blackstone transaction, I mean, truthfully, when, when I first got here um, and, and put the, the deal together with Todd and, and some other uh, partners that were at the business back then that aren't here now, Keith Nelson, um, and Sean Brenchley. Um, when we put the deal together, um, the, the original investment thesis was, and the business was valued at like $25 million back then. Uh, so that was like 12 years ago. And um, the original investment thesis was we could build like a 250000 or $250 million uh, business. Um, and as we got into it, um, uh, Todd and I were talking to each other, and I, I distinctly kind of remember... Um, well, when I told him that, he actually was like, $250 million? Are you crazy? There, I, there's no way we can do that. And I'm like, I really think we can. And so uh, then we just started ratcheting it up. After a while, 
I remember having a conversation with him one night, and he's like, what if we could build like a billion-dollar business? And I'm like, no, I think you're crazy. I don't think we could do that. Um, and then we started to think about, well, well, here's what we would have to do. And, you know, um, the, and for us, it was never like the, about the money. It was always about like, well, here's kind of what that would represent. Um, then it, then it went to, you know, back then, then it was like two, we like kind of put this plan together and we're like, Hey, we actually think we could build like a multi-billion dollar business. Um, and we didn't talk about it much, honestly, with other people because we knew they would think we were crazy and it was just easier not to explain it. So we just didn't talk about it. Um, at least, um, externally we did internally. Um, and, and I think, um, I think the way that you kind of get to those kinds of results is really mostly about focusing on the inputs. And um, we didn't, what we did is we said, hey, here's maybe where we want to try and get to. So that $2 billion number. So then we said, okay, what kind of company would we have to build in order to accomplish that? And then we really, we didn't forget about the $2 billion, but if we talked about the $2 billion, it was more representation of what we would have to do every day in order to build the kind of company that would be worth that much. Um, and so it was more about the inputs. And so then we just went and started focusing every day on, okay, here's what we need to do today. We had a, a broad strategy that was guiding those daily decisions. Um, but, you know, the strategy, honestly, what I mean, it was – if you probably took all of the combined hours that was spent on developing the strategy, it might be like 72 hours. I don't, I mean, it wasn't, the strategy wasn't that hard to figure out. Um, it was more about the execution of that strategy. And we spent, you know, every day kind of executing on it. Um, so we just kind of were doing that. The interesting thing was there were times during that, that we were like, Hey, we're, we're on the path, we're doing this, we're going to accomplish our goals. And there were times where it felt like we were worth nothing. Um, and in fact, a year before we sold for $2 billion, um, we had some uh, we had some issues with a credit facility and we had some covenants on that cre credit facility that we were getting very close to. Um, and if, you know, you know, you, you never ever want to um, trip a covenant in a credit facility because then the bank essentially controls your company. Um, and we were managing these covenants like on a daily basis. Well, not even daily, like hourly basis to make sure we were not tripping them. And it was a it was temporary. We knew that over the course of 12 months, we would like get back to normalized. We had, we had ordered too much. Um, uh, we had predicted a certain number of installs. We had ordered too much inventory. And then on top of the inventory, we had ordered too much of a, a cushion for the inventory. So we had a bunch of inventory sitting in the warehouse, um, and it wasn't turning into recurring revenue for customers. And because of that, it was it was getting very close. And, and all we had to do was use that inventory in like six months from now to generate customers, and we'd be fine again. But it was, it was I mean, it was... Uh, uh, as close to you know a life threatening kind of uh, in the in terms of business um, uh, life or death situation that I've ever been been in um, and was very very stressful um, and I you know I remember you know having conversations with Todd late at night like I mean I would have been happy to to take a hundred thousand bucks out of this thing you know and you know um, 
and obviously um you know a year later we sold the business for two billion and so um there in my experience, there's no such thing as up and to the right in a straight line. Um, it just doesn't it um, doesn't happen that way. There's at least, and, and maybe other people have experienced this, but um, differently. But my experience in all the businesses I've done is lots of ups and downs. There's near-death experiences. There's, and if you're focused, though, on the right things every day, and then you're sometimes just fighting to survive, you know, maybe the only input is I'm just going to make sure that we don't go bankrupt today. And, you know, you get through the day. Um, if you do that well enough and you have a good strategy and some luck, I mean, I, I, I for sure think that, you know, we were lucky. Um, and, and, um, I'd like to say that, you know, we had foresight and picking smart home as a strategy and all this stuff. Um, and I think there was some of that there, but I also think some of it was just luck. Um, but we tried to do everything uh, that we could control. And then we got to a place where all of a sudden, you know, we had we had Blackstone wanting to buy our business for $2 billion. And honestly, it was surreal. Um, my wife was like, what? You know, I mean, she knows me. So she's like, how did you do that? Um, and And I'm like, well, I didn't. There was a whole team of people, but... And it doesn't, it just didn't, um, we had been so focused on the inputs. We kind of um, just, it, it wasn't fast. It, it took time. It was hard. We had near-death experiences. We, And then once you got there, you were like, wow, I can't, you know, you look back at what you had accomplished and it was pretty amazing. But it didn't feel amazing. Well, it just felt like, you know, you're just going to work and doing what you needed to do every day. Um and so we're a big believer, I'm a big believer in making sure if your inputs are the right inputs um, and you really just focus on those and then you pivot, you know, you have to respond to what's going on and change. But if you're if you're doing the right inputs, you'll get the outcome that you want to get almost every time. What you can't control is when that outcome will happen. Sometimes it takes longer, sometimes it's shorter. And I think much of the angst um, comes in businesses and entrepreneurs and startups where it's like, okay, I have to do this and I have to do this in the next 12 months. Um, and I've been in that situation a lot. Um, so sometimes that's just the reality. But if, if I had to give advice, I would say if you can give yourself as much runway and as much time as possible to get to your goal because if you do the you know if you're focused on the right inputs you will get to your outcome and give us some examples of inputs for people who may not know exactly what you mean there yeah i mean i think it's different for different businesses but you know for us there was a few metrics that really mattered obviously acquiring new customers is like a really important input for any business and many times i think you know we see a lot of these companies that venture capital and they're focused on the product and this and that and it's like well how are you going to create customers and they're just going to come beat our door down typically that's not how most businesses there's a few social media companies that i think have been able to create that but typically you're having to create customers it doesn't just happen spontaneously so focused on well what are we doing to create customers what channels are we developing how is that working you know um, uh, finding kind of a winning strategy and then really doubling down on that. Um, so that was really important. Our cost of creating a customer was another input that we focused on every day. Um, attrition. So once you got a customer, 
how much it once you got a customer and you knew you know how much it cost well what's the the life cycle of a customer once they come in what were our service costs so that was another really important input that we focused on every single day um and um and so really for our business it's like that was it if we focused on creating customers at a good creation cost and have a you know low attrition and our servicing cost um was good and then what was the arpu per customer if i manage those five things um is that's five or four if i manage those things um then we were going to get a good outcome and and so when things got super complicated or hard or it's like you just go back and say look these are the things that matter in our business and i fell into the trap early on in my first company and my first two where you could come in and spend all day on stuff and feel like wow i knocked off 100 things on my list and and then i'd look and say i i don't think i created any value for my business today i like put in you know the phone system got installed and this happened and i fixed this i did this hr issue and those things need to happen but many times as an entrepreneur you can kind of uh, i think mistake um movement for progress and um and so that's why it's so important to identify well what are the inputs that are going to make my business valuable and i shouldn't like i should be making sure i'm doing those and excluding the ones that maybe you know maybe don't aren't aren't going to contribute to that value so for me for our business those were the inputs and the the funny thing is those are still our inputs um that we're focused on there's a lot of things that flow from that so it's not you know our our servicing cost can be broken down into 100 other things um and you know we do that and have that detail but it all flows up to hey what what's our you know what is it are we creating customers what's it costing us to create customers what's our arpu what's the average attrition and then what's the servicing cost and then i can know by looking at those metrics if we're growing and creating values of business or we're not um and i have reports that i look at every day and we still actually are just doing that um and you know i think we're still creating a tremendous amount of value um for the business and there's ups and downs that you go through in that but those are the inputs that are that that matter to our business you know um and and just quickly before i ask this next question what was the the solar transaction what were the numbers on that when you well solar solar has been a interesting up and down ride for us um we love our solar business and so we incubated that and spun it out um we took it public um we took it public for you know i think it it was close to 2 billion dollars or it was a billion and a half to 2 billion um we then actually sold we actually sold that business um to a company called Sun Edison and we sold it for 2.1 or 2.2 billion and um and so we signed on the deal and typically when you do Sun Edison was a publicly traded company typically from signing a deal to closing um is 6 to you know 6 to 12 months um depending on regulatory re- uh approvals and financing in place and all that stuff but when you've signed a deal you've sold the business and in fact we had sold the business and um Sun Edison was essentially running it um we were running it but we couldn't actually make any um changes to the business unless they approved so they they owned the business we just hadn't they hadn't given us the money yet 
So um, from the time that we signed to um, the time we closed, when we signed Sun Edison and they had a few, they had like three companies that were in kind of the an umbrella of companies that were all together, I think had something like a $15 billion market cap. Um, and, and when we um, were supposed to sign, they had a $500 million market cap um, and they actually went bankrupt. Um, and so we backed out of that deal, um, obviously, um, before they went bankrupt, we backed out and, um, and then the stock price of the solar business tanked, um, because, uh, both of industry factors and we, you know, we backed out of this deal that valued the business at over 2 billion. So then our, then, uh, Vivint Solar was, um, a few hundred million, um, dollars and we're now kind of building that business back up. It's, it's, uh, stock price is, you know, this year, um, grown by, I think like 75%. So it's, you know, we're starting to, to build it back up, but that's been a really interesting ride. And the CEO over there, David Bywater, um, now was the, uh, uh, COO at smart home business. Um, we're working closely together. There's kind of a common ownership structure in the non, uh, public, um, equity. And, um, and so, you know, the the truth is is that Todd and I's vision of smart home includes energy. Um, it's a big part of it, and so um, we always wanted um, the customer to be able to have a smart home. And we think a part of smart home is both energy production and energy management. Um, and and so solar kind of fits into that broader vision, um, but is a standalone company and kind of runs on its own. And and um, and we have um, a really good relationship and partnership between the companies. That's great. Well, um, kind of closing off here on on part two of the episode of the interview. Um, I was thinking about what you were saying about you know you spent seventy two hours really on the strategy and then you did the right inputs long enough. Yeah. Right. And um, you know we had John Pastana on the show a week ago. And you know he's part of the Omniture guys yeah. who sold no, to no, Adobe yeah, for the no, John. one point eight billion, right? Yeah. And he said a similar thing in a way. He said, you know, you got to start with a business that could become a billion-dollar business. He's like, you know, when I was looking through the ideas, I, I wasn't interested in anything that didn't have a realistic, a realistic model that could be at least $100 million in revenue. Yep. Right? And that, that was his starting point. And then, then you had to go do the right things. Yeah. Right? Um, any, any advice for someone else out there who's thinking, okay – what are the things I need to ask myself of, is this legitimately something that can be a billion dollar business or could do a hundred million in revenue plus? Or yeah. Something? So I totally, I, I actually would agree a hundred percent, um, with what he says. Um, I think that's right. I do think that, um, there's a lot of very valuable businesses that have been created from businesses that I don't think started out as companies that had a clear path to a billion dollars. Um, we're we're one of those companies. Yeah, I was gonna say well, you guys, you know, starting off as a twenty five, and then should we be two fifty, well, and then and, and then you Todd, had to make those Todd really had, had started that way before that, um, and he started selling pest control door to door. Is what the origins of our company are, and um, that certainly wasn't. You know, I I don't think I'd look at that and say, hey, that's a multi billion dollar business you got there, um, and so, um, but I don't think that contradicts what John says. I think you know maybe had. Um, um, 
if if Todd had sat down and said, "Hey, I'm starting," it, it, his kind of just happened, and so if Todd had sat down and said, "Hey, I'm starting something," he maybe wouldn't have started the way he did. Um, but I so what I would say is is that I think execution um, leads to a lot of opportunity. So if you execute well, um, we've pivoted and changed our business, you know, five or six times, and that's what's allowed us to get to where we are at. Um, so that kind of successful execution. So if you can start by saying, Hey, I, you know, here's a business as a clear path to a hundred million dollars and you can execute well, then you, you know, it, it will take a lot less time than it took us to get to where you're at, which it it did for those guys. Um, and again, whether it's at the start or whether it's 10 years in that somebody's making the decision, I want to have a billion dollar business. Yeah. Okay. What's it going to take to have a bill? Cause I think that's such a logical chain, right? Of what's it going to take to have a company that could produce that. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts on how to fact check ourselves? How do we, cause you know, there's the, there's the bozos who are telling you nothing will work. <laughs> there's the dreamers that think everything can work. Yeah. Any, any tips for, I got to be honest with myself. I got to have enough confidence to try something that hasn't been done maybe, but I got to have enough reality that I'm not barking up the wrong tree that so navigating that subtlety. Yeah, no, I, th- I think I actually think a lot about this cause I have a lot of people come and tell me stuff and I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I should encourage them to, you know, chase that dream cause I'm not sure it's going to work, but you know, I could be wrong too. And I'll, I'll tell people that. And so I, I think what I, the advice that I would give is to, you should listen to not the people who think everything's going to work. You should listen to the people who think nothing's going to work and understand exactly why they think it's not going to work um, and list it all out. So here are the 25 reasons and go talk to 10 people. And, you know, usually um, you'll start to build a consensus like, okay, here are the, here are the reasons why this isn't going to work. And then you better have a good, um, path or um, reason why you think you can make those 25 things work, right? It can't just be, well, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really good. So, you know, um, I'm going to make, I'm, I'm going to make that work. It's like, here's, here are the 25 reasons why they think it's not going to work. And here's how I'm going to overcome those 25 reasons. So I would say, don't fight the, the um, naysayers like prove them wrong and you don't prove a naysayer wrong by saying, by just trying to not talk about the problems. Um, just say, well, you know, this is just going to be great. It's going to be great. Right. And going through that exercise, um, is actually, um, um, is actually really valuable for any entrepreneur. Um, because, um, the people who are probably telling you, hey, here's why you can't. If someone just says, I think it's stupid and they can't articulate it or can't articulate what they think the problems are, then maybe they're stupid. Um, but if you have a successful you know, person that's invested or business person, they can say, hey, here are the five things that I think are the reasons why I wouldn't invest or the five things. Um, so all those no's that I got early with Apex, I listened to everything they said. Um, I actually understood what they were saying. Um, I just disagreed. I actually agreed with them, but I felt like um, I had a, had a way to mitigate those risks and that I could successfully kind of transition the business into a full service company. And so it wasn't 
them being negative and me being positive and the two weren't connected. It was like, I wasn't listening to the negative stuff and I was just saying, Hey, this is going to work. Cause I just feel it in my bones. Um, I was saying, Hey, I understand why you think it's not going to work. Here's my plan to kind of mitigate those risks. And I feel confident in my ability to execute on that plan. And so I probably, my advice would be, um, would be don't listen to the people who think you're going to be successful. Um, listen to the ones who think you're going to fail and understand why. Um, and then if you have a, a credible plan, um, and now it just comes down to like a difference of opinion, like, well, I think, you know, you won't build a call center that does this or you won't. And, and you're saying, nope, I will. Then that's, that's different than saying, I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to do, but I just feel in my bones that I'm supposed to do it. It's like, well, you know, that I, I, I wouldn't, that person's going to fail because it's likely that all of the problems that those intelligent people are bringing up are problems you're actually going to have to deal with in building the business. And so if you know that early and you have a plan to get through that, those problems, you're increasing your chances of success by a lot. Um, and so that's probably how I would say, you know, um, um, it, listen to the, like, you don't have to agree. Um, and, and maybe, well, for me, I actually agree. Everybody, anybody who said, here's why I'm not investing. I'd say to him, oh, I probably agree with you. Like, I totally understand why, you know, that, that we, that the company hasn't kept customers yet. And they were all actually like logical, good reasons why they shouldn't invest. And then I left and said, I have a plan to get around those and I'm going to make these people regret the day that they didn't invest in me. And they all did. So (laughs) (laughs) that is the best place to end the episode right there. Appreciate all the time you've given us here today. All right. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you'll remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard uh, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run, and it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors we're pretty excited about it hope you check out blipbillboards.com thanks hi welcome to the subway ad for 299 subs how would you like it uh i'll take drill sergeant please you got it all right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just two ninety-nine each. Sir, yes, sir. Subway. 
Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.